This is an ABC podcast. Today, the Australian Defence Force is rightly held to account for allegations of grave misconduct by some members of our Special Forces community on operations in Afghanistan. That was the voice of the Chief of the Australian Defence Force, General, Ang- uh, General Angus Campbell, last week, delivering the findings of the Brereton Inquiry into alleged war crimes committed by members of Australia's Special Forces in Afghanistan. It frames this week's edition of The Minefield, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Hmm. Are mm. there dilemmas in this one, or is it morally straightforward? I suppose there are always dilemmas to be unearthed, and that's what we will try to do um, at a moment that I think is very sobering in a lot of different ways. Mm. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hello, Scott. Hello, Waleed. Go on. Well, which bit do you want me to go on with? The sobering bit. I'm just. I'm. I'm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what you're thinking here. I'm. Just, I'm. <sighs> I've had, I've, I've had very complicated reactions yeah. to this news. Um, I felt myself torn in all kinds of directions. Um, it's sobering in what it does to the na- national mythology. Yeah. I have to confess, and maybe this is the first time it has been remotely safe to confess it, that I've never much believed that mythology. And so there's... <laughs> There's a soberness all round, really, because if you suspect that the mythology isn't what it uh, claims for itself, then that is a sobering thing to think about. So, But if you believe in that mythology, then suddenly having something put in front of you that calls it into question must also be sobering. Hmm. So when you say mythology, yeah. am I right? Because, uh, I mean, obviously I didn't grow up here. The United States has its own form of military mythology that's that's analogous to, but for precisely that reason, is infinitely different from the particular type of military veneration that is in this country. So when you say mythology, you're talking about the Anzac myth- mythos. You're talking about, I assume, you're talking about the way in which the ADF – are held up as, in many respects, incarnating or embodying and preserving that which is the very best of Australian national life and most commendable in Australia's short history. Am I am I right? Yeah, I think that broadly captures it. But also that there is a form of Australian exceptionism that mm. operates here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very subtle form, I think. Um, Compared to some other exceptionalisms, I think it's a it's not a bad form, <laughs> but it's a form that effectively makes us innocent of most things that befall other nations. Um, this idea that our involvement in war is always reluctant, noble that we're not um, we're, we're not war mongers. We are given we, tasks to do, and then when we do them, we punch above our weight. Yep. And that we don't transgress. We don't need to transgress and we don't do it. So when an Abu Ghraib happens, even then, I mean, I think there was an element of trying to downplay it because it was an ally and it was at a particular moment that... um, It was morally fraught, let's say. Yeah, yeah. In a war that was kind of up for grabs a little bit uh, and so on. So you, you got the kind of usual political divides over that kind of thing. Um, I wouldn't say it was straight up denialism or anything like that, but it, it you know, understanding it and contextualising it and so on. Um, but there was still a safe distance that we could observe. Now, you know, what has been found in this report is not the same thing as Abu Ghraib. It's, it's different in in probably important ways, but there's something about the untaintedness of Australia and Australian military excursions in the popular imagination. Maybe that's too strong in the popular mythology that uh, I've always been skeptical of. And I think, you know, I'm far from alone on that, Mm. but you know, the, the, and I've had this thought a lot actually over 
you know, the past few years where it seems like there's been this annual ritual on Anzac Day that someone gets berated for saying something that isn't entirely venerating of, mm, mm. of the Anzacs. Um, I, I've had this thought that when you have the kind of window onto what it might be like to be at the opposite end of Australian military involvement that I think quite a few people would have had in Australia over the past 20 years, and especially people who um, either are Muslims or have had some kind of experience, uh, some kind of sympathy, feel some kind of fidelity to the populations that have suffered greatly in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, there are moments where that sort of ritualized veneration and that sort of quite aggressive policing of anyone who doesn't sign up to it eagerly in that moment, uh, feels pretty awful. Mm. Like it, there's a sort of, what are you asking me to venerate right now? What exactly are you asking me to venerate? Uh, and this goes back, you know, and I remember there was a study, I wish I could figure out which year it was, but it was a while ago now, a survey of attitudes of people in the Defence Force, and I think the SAS was well represented in this group, that showed attitudes towards Islam and attitudes towards Muslims was pretty rank, actually. Mm. And so when these stories... I should say some out, of that, or uh, not just some of that, a considerable amount of that isn't also reflected in the Brereton report. Right, but this survey was out a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. It was published in national newspapers. Yeah. Right? No one's much cared. But there was something about knowing that was there and then watching on Anzac Day as everyone turned around and screamed at you to celebrate or venerate a culture that had this within it. Now, I don't. in saying this, I don't in any way mean to throw that back to some kind of um, Australian Defence Force origin story or anything mm, like that. Mm, I'm not... I'm not trying to make this a grand historic narrative, of, um, partly because I'm just not qualified to do so. I just don't have the knowledge to do that. Um, but, you know, there is something about militarised mythologies that have a habit of obfuscating this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so when this becomes shocking, I can tell you there would have been a lot of people in Australia who weren't shocked. Yeah. I think one of the added dimensions to this, Willie, and I really appreciate you doing this. I, 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 we didn't plan this, but... I wasn't intending to say it. I know. <laughs> I could hear it in your voice, though. I'm nothing if not... Well, I'm actually not perceptive at all, so let's just say I got lucky this time. <laughs> you are, actually. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that I have found long troubling within Australian national life, and, you know, the relationship between the Australian government or the federal government and the Australian military is very different the way that it is in the United States... But I have often been uh, troubled by – I should say morally troubled more than anything else – by those times where I feel that the military has been reduced to a kind of ornament, to drapery in order to convey a certain sense of either gravitas or of beyond reproachness, if I can put it that way, to otherwise extremely controversial or contentious uh, political decisions. Uh, we could make reference to the Northern Territory intervention. We could make reference to the fact that General Angus Campbell often used to appear side by side with then uh, Immigration Minister Scott Morrison uh, doing uh, delivering briefings concerning Operation Sovereign Borders. So I, I think th there are ways in which national mythologies surrounding soldiers, surrounding the military can be uh, can be used to deny certain crucial historical facts about national life. They can also be used, uh, I, I wouldn't even say aesthetically, but almost as a form of kitsch. Um, they can be used almost cynically in order to shield politics and politicians from proper democratic scrutiny. So I, I, have, I, I have concerns about that. I do – I should say though, Waleed, you know, if, if the story – if part of the story of the Australian military is one of historical innocence, that we are not warmongers, 
We are really, really good at following orders. And when we follow orders, even when they're stupid orders done by stupid or effete generals, <laughs> usually British, then, then we yeah. still go to our deaths bravely by God. You'd have to say that the American version of the military is precisely the opposite to that. If, if part of the Australian mythology is the fact of clean – or the perception of clean hands, morally clean hands in warfare, then the, the appearance of or the fact of the American military is precisely the opposite, that the American military have done things that are unimaginable in many respects, that in some respects might even be regarded as morally egregious or even unforgivable. And yet the fact of the dirty hands is explained away by the fact that America's had to be involved in and has in fact initiated conflicts that are themselves so morally fraught, so geopolitically grave that there is no way of doing this without getting one's hands terribly, 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 almost sort of you know irredeemably dirty. But I think the thing that then plunges that story into a deeper degree of 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 moral um, of of moral difficulty is the fact that the American military are then held outside of the usual forms of civilian or common justice. Uh, hence, military courts, military trials, military lawyers, and so on. I and, am, and exclusively national ones, by the way, because yes. of the refusal to sign up to international, international criminal court. That's exactly court. right. Yeah. So, so it's for precisely this reason, Waleed. I, I have to say, and, and look, I mean, what what you've said is 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 important, and it resonates very deeply with me. Obviously, I don't think the same intensity that it does for you. But I've been, I've been made more hopeful by the way in which the Brereton inquiry was conducted. The relative, I think, within the bounds of reason, the forms of transparency that have surrounded the disclosure of the report. I, I, I understand the need for a redaction. Um, the proper humility and poise which accompanied Angus Campbell's uh, delivery of those findings and the moral language, the decidedly moral language that was used in the way in which those findings were delivered and the fact that the proper endpoint of all of this is not just the kind of moral restitution of the ADF and the proper trust that's placed in the ADF, but that the final endpoint of this is in civilian courts. On all those points, well, I, I, I take all your points about national mythology, but there's also something here I think that's important. Part of this process is about how is it that a nation like Australia can say that those who are commissioned to fight and kill in our name can still nonetheless belong in moral community with the rest of us. So to, to my mind, that is where a, a kind of hopeful inflection takes place. I, I, I hope I don't come across as being glib in saying that. No, I actually agree with that, I think. Um, yeah, one of my early thoughts when I heard the news was it's impressive that we've disclosed this. Yeah. That hasn't happened in the UK. It hasn't happened in the US. That's it's right. been determinedly blocked, actually. Yep. So there is something to be said for it. Um, my question about that is how far exactly that takes us. I think it does take us some way. I think it's significant. It may not take us as far as some of us would like to believe. I don't, I don't know. I have to think about that. Mm. Um, now's not the time for thinking. Now's the time for talking. <laughs> so let's get to the guest. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN. You might be doing that right now, uh, in which case, thank you. But you can also catch us anytime you like on the ABC Listen app. And we exist as a podcast as well, which has the radio show, but then we keep going after the show's off air. So if you subscribe to podcast anywhere, you should be able to find us and subscribe. And with any luck, you'll enjoy it even more than you do on the radio machine. Scott, we have a guest. Now's not the time for thinking. If there was ever a line that we needed to use as the as the headline of our show, I'm sure it's probably that. That's, that's just the summary of media, isn't it? <laughs> right. Don't think, talk. Right. Our guest, and what a joy it is to have this guest on This of All Discussions. Dean Peter Baker is Associate Professor of International and Political Studies at University of New South Wales in Canberra. He's the author of I'm, I'm, I don't mean to sort of puff you up too much, Dean, but it really is one of the most impressive books on military ethics I've read for a long time. Uh, it's called Morality and Ethics at War, Bridging the Gaps Between Soldier and State. Dean, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thanks very much for having me and thanks for the kind words. I appreciate it. 
Um, I want to begin. I, I said before that one of the most impressive aspects, I thought, of General Angus Houston's delivery of the findings, a pre- presentation of the findings of the Brereton Report, was the, I mean, it, it was in military language, but the fact that he tried to register the moral expectations that exist on soldiers and the fact that he tried to address the alleged crimes that took place, not just as breaches of international law, but as breaches of what we expect one of one another within a moral community. That was something I found very impressive. There's just one thing I just want to put to you. He said one of the fundamental things that, this, that, that the Brereton Inquiry indicates that went wrong is that a self-centered warrior culture was cultivated within the special forces, uh, forces, which abandoned, quote, the regiment's heritage of military excellence fused with quiet humility of service in favor of ego, entitlement, and exceptionalism. I just wonder if you could help us think through this idea of the development of a warrior culture. Isn't that exactly what we expect, what we should expect of our soldiers? It's a, it's a really great question, and there is a, a fair amount of debate about this idea of a warrior uh, culture. Um, so Shannon French is a, another military ethicist who's got a, an excellent book on warrior culture and how um, the internal principles of some warrior cultures are really important to ethics. So I think we have to be a, a little bit careful about being too broad brush in our, in our discussion of that. But I do think – I do ha- have some – concerns about that that image of a warrior um partially one one of the the challenges if if you're a warrior well what is it that you are you're someone who does war uh and and obviously that is the the core business of our military but it's not all that the military does um and a lot of the time what we want from them is to do things other than uh kill people and break things as the old saying goes uh and so i think um you know I think that there's a much more powerful case for something like professional, although, again, uh, as I I suggest in my book, I think that's maybe a little bit too narrow. I quite like the idea of um, an an image of a guardian. I think that that says a lot about what the role is and and also about what the relationship of the the military person is to the society, Uh, but not just to the society that they – uh, themselves represent, but it, it's a kind of a generalized idea of um, the protector, uh, someone who, yes, uses force to kill, uh, and that's necessary, that's part of the role, but only always in the service of that broader idea of being a protector. Well, well do you mind if I just follow up with something really quick? Go for it. So, to, so, Dean, I, I find that extremely helpful. I know that one of the philosophers, I mean, one of Waleed's my favorite philosophers as well, and he's been a guest on this show, someone who's influenced you very deeply is Charles Taylor. One of the point that, points that Charles Taylor makes in a very important essay on the nature of violence and relationship between violence and politics is that he says that, you know, one of the things that we require of our soldiers is we require of them the preparedness to give up something that is essentially morally human, namely the refusal to kill. We demand that they renounce a refusal to kill. And then the the drama, if you like, the struggle of military ethics is how is it then once we've demanded of them that they give up that refusal to kill, how is it then that we keep hold of them within a common moral community? Angus Campbell frequently spoke about restraints, about a point coming where after this point was crossed, Members allegedly gave up all restraints. Do you see this as maybe a helpful way of thinking about the continuity that exists uh, within a civilian culture and its military extension? Absolutely. One of the the core principles of the just war tradition at the operational and tactical level is the idea, the principle of discrimination. Uh, In fact, uh, I argue that that's really the core principle um, for, for military personnel. And we tend to think of that, that principle of discrimination as, as ethicists refer to it or distinction as lawyers refer to it, uh, which is obviously the idea of engaging the right people and not the wrong people. And we tend to think of it as a, as a, as a limitation first and foremost. But actually, it's first and foremost, it's a permission, a unique permission that we give to military people, which is in the right circumstances to 
engage and potentially kill the nation's enemies. That's a, a, a core, that is really the heart of the profession. And it's, it's unique. We don't find this in any other profession. Yes, police may kill under certain circumstances, but it's always tied to self-defense or defense of others in the immediate context. Um, it's much broader than that in the military context. And so it's a very, very unique thing and a very, very difficult thing that we are asking people to do. And having that permission bounded uh, in very sharp, clear and, and strong ways is so foundational because otherwise we do end up in situations where those, those constraints are lost and terrible things happen. So let me uh, channel Scott here in saying that all of that is fine to say, but it cannot work when it's distilled to codes of conduct, right? It, it, these things require moral practice because it, it's inhuman to expect that someone can turn on and off their kill switch um, without indulging in the kinds of broader or allowing their... The, in order to kill someone, you have to dehumanise them for it to be an experience that you can deal with psychologically, really, right? And it is very hard to confine that in sort of rigorous ways without it bleeding into broader categories of people, which is clearly what we've seen in this case with the killing of civilians. They've been dehumanised because the dehumanisation of the enemy has bled into the whole population, really. That, to me, seems like something that human beings will do. That, that It's almost natural that that would happen. It's just, unless you've really got some kind of rigorous way of ensuring the moral fibre of these people going in. That's a kind of moral formation. That's a kind of moral inculcation that no code of conduct or series of disciplinary procedures can hope to achieve. I think um, a couple of points on that, if I can pick, pick up on it. Um, the first thing to say is I'm maybe a little bit more optimistic than perhaps, perhaps you are. Maybe I'm misreading you on the ability to to turn that switch on and off. Um, I think the vast majority of soldiers do that and do that effectively and do that honorably. We are dealing with a, a, a minority uh, when these, these events happen. The, the other point is about dehumanization and that, that's exactly right. I, I mentioned uh, Shannon French earlier. She, she's uh, done a lot of work with a, a neuroscientist um, that she works with on, on the actual brain functioning and What's emerged from that is that, yes, unless you're a psychopath, um, your ability to do the military job of killing somebody um, is it's almost impossible to do without some degree of objectification. But I think what, what uh, militaries have realized for a long time is it's the kind of objectification that matters there um, or dehumanization, rather. And it's objectification that works not some kind of animalistic dehumanization. So the moment we start thinking of the enemy as um, somehow subhuman, that's the real danger. Because when the the, uh, the fighting has ended, they're still subhuman in whatever way that is. Uh, whether it's you think of the Rwanda genocide and the, the labeling of people as cockroaches. Well, they're always cockroaches. But what militaries have, have tried to do, and, have, and generally are very successful at this, is try to treat the enemy as an object. They're a target, for example. Um, we are engaging a target. Uh, that's, that's a degree of, uh, if you like, dehumanization in the sense that, that we set aside their humanity as we're, as we're engaging them. That works quite well because we can turn that on and off. Uh, when I've engaged the target and the target is down, it's no longer a target. Now I can start to think of that that target in the way I'm supposed to as a fellow human being um, who I owe a certain uh, level of moral respect to and therefore a certain kind of treatment as a prisoner or someone who's injured and so on. So I think it can be done. Um, but I think there are all sorts of factors, environmental factors, leadership factors, and so on, that can um, make that much harder to, to um, if you like, dam the bridge, if that makes uh, mm. dam the, the lake, if that makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. I think that's uh, – sorry, just to flag what I think we're going to pick up in the podcast. I think this is going to be one of the really interesting next parts of the discussion is working out how it is that soldiers themselves remain integrated moral agents and not just people who can – who are killing machines or simply follow orders. That, that might be the next step where we go. 
Mm. All right. We're at the end of the radio part of the show. Um, we're going to stick around for the podcast if you can, because obviously we have to give some important uh, support phone numbers out with respect to this topic. So they will be available on the podcast. We will see Dean Baker on the other side, and we'll see you next week. Um, so, 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 Dean, thank you very much for this. I, I do. I find the idea of the necessity of the dehumanization of one's enemy, or even if we don't want to say dehumanization, but we want to say maybe the objectification or the thingification of one's enemy, which presumably ought to take a dimension of the bloodlust out of the act of killing or sport out of the act of killing or even joy out of the act of killing. There is this long tradition of the kind of sad warrior who does the job that needs to be done but takes no relish in doing that. I, I, I find that a compelling idea. But I guess, I mean, I've got Simone Weil screaming in the back of my head that what the application of force does by its nature uh, vis-a-vis another human being is to reduce a body with a soul to just a body, just a thing, just something that can be extinguished without impunity. And I guess, I mean, what have we seen in the descriptions of some of these alleged crimes apart from that the reduction of military duty to blood sport or to what angus campbell refers to as a toxic competitiveness i mean what have we seen other than a severe lack of the kind of moral formation that we would then expect to be able to say these people exist in the same moral community with us just to the extent that they've been able to regard human beings as essentially things without souls that can be snuffed without any moral consequence. Oh, absolutely. That's that's not what we want. And that, that's, I guess, where the, that, that key issue of being able to turn this on and off and quite how we do that. Um, and there is some science to this, but we're still uh, working that out to some degree. The problem comes when we we're, we overstep and, we, and we're, we're beyond that moment of the conflict uh, where we have legitimate targets, we're engaging the legitimate targets, but that moment has ended and I'm no longer then treating them uh, with respect as fellow human beings. And, and I think um, you know, one of the things I tried to emphasize in my teaching is, a, is a, I suppose, a, a broadly Kantian approach, um, which is, which we can kind of, we can make sense of that idea of killing in the heart of conflict as still being, at least roughly speaking, uh, a respectful act in the sense that if we are engaging others who are participating in, in war, who are engaged in hostilities, they have accepted in, to some degree that, that there is a consequence to their actions, that the enemy, their enemy will try to kill them. And so by doing that, we are not undermining their, them as, as human beings. We're not undermining their rational choice. They've chosen this, this course. And if it's um, lethal results follow for them, that's still in some weird kind of way respectful of their choices. But clearly what's not respectful of anybody's choices is anything that would count as a war crime or atrocity. Um, and so the, it's a it's really key, I think, as a mindset, uh, as a way to, to keep that continuity across where you're doing two very different kinds of things. But I think, I mean, this, the, the, this does come back, though, to the issue at the heart, I believe, of all of this. And I think Waleed flagged it before, which is the problem of, I mean, really what I think we would want to say is, a lack of proper differentiation between, say, non-combatants and combatants, that, quote-unquote, Afghanistan becomes an undifferentiated mass of potential hostiles. I was very, very moved by the way that Angus Campbell tried to frame this. He framed the outcomes of the, of the Brereton Inquiry as both a betrayal of what the Australian people come to respect, uh, come to expect of the ADF, but also a betrayal of the trust that Afghans placed in the ADF to abide by the norms and the rules of international law and to be, if you like, the shepherds or safeguards of something like uh, civic peace and the prospect of something like democratic equality. That idea of a kind of dual betrayal 
really was, I think, trying to signal that we need to see these crimes in the context, these alleged crimes in the context of an extended moral community that runs from Australians to fellow human beings in Afghanistan. Absolutely right. I, you know, I, I think we we have a, a, a fundamental duty as as human beings, but particularly members of the armed forces, have have a two key key um, requirements on them. One is a, a specific, and, and here I'm talking about a liberal democratic state like Australia. One is a, a a deep and enduring commitment to the values that define the nature of the state, uh, and a key part of that obviously is is a, a respect for all human beings, for life, uh, for for people's choices, for people's um, free will, uh, and so on. Um, so there's that, and and that is that's got to be there. That's got to be present all the way through. The moment some people are excluded from that, uh, we run into problems. On the other hand, there's a tension there with a particular responsibility with the uh, of military people to focus on the defence of the interests of the state and doing what it, what is required um, for the state itself. There is a tension, but I do think it is potentially, if it's done right, I think it's a productive tension. I think that um, a lot of the the key principles of the just war tradition are really built around that. Not that that's their origin, but I think we can frame them in in that way way of thinking um, as a as a walking a, a difficult path, a narrow path between competing um, ideas but a really vital path, and I think it is doable. And, and I think that that's what's, uh, what's been recognised there. To what extent do you think, though, Dean, that soldiers can be insulated from the political narrative that surrounds what they do? Because, you know, I, I would argue that in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, the political conversation that surrounded those military excursions was really one of some kind of cesspit or some pit of vipers or something where because it wasn't a conventional war, well, sorry, it was a conventional war in response to an unconventional threat, namely terrorism. It wasn't a conventional war in the sense of being a war on another nation state um, because that nation state has transgressed something or there's some geostrategic reason for it or whatever. Um, you had to create a kind of bridge of complicity between that country and the people who did 9-11, something like that, right? Or between that country and um, international terrorism in the case of uh, Iraq, which was a connection that, of course, ended up being spurious and I think was identifiably spurious at the time. Once you enter into that kind of narrative territory, you, you, you kind of walking into a, a a logic of generalization, aren't you? It certainly felt that way for me anyway, as a citizen, just watching my political leaders talk about this. And I find it hard to believe that a soldier isn't imbibing that as well. So can I just, just to add a footnote to that though, Waleed, certainly in the case of, I mean, in the case of Afghanistan, there did seem to me to be the kind of logic of this is an undifferentiated mass of, if not terrorists, then proto-terrorists or proto-vipers or would-be or potential. In the case of Iraq, it was almost – it was still a prejudicial but it was almost the accompanying or cognate idea, which is this is a nation of proto-democrats. Yeah, uh, yeah, if, if we just if we top, keep bombing it, we'll discover America, sort of thing. Yeah. If we just yeah. move the ty- remove the tyrant, then democracy will spring up. Well, if not fully formed, then kind of naturally from this. In other words, the problem wasn't simply lack of differentiation. It was also the yeah. lack of history. Okay. Well, in that case, let's confine ourselves to Afghanistan because that's obviously what the Beredin Report's looking at anyway. And that's where my question probably has more coherence. So, well, one, one part of the answer is that, you know, traditionally, the just war tradition draws a, a very clear distinction between the responsibilities of, of soldiers and the responsibilities of um, the, the state and the politicians. Uh, and that's that line between the jus ad bellum, the decision to go to war, to engage in a war uh, or a conflict, and the jus in bello, which is the appropriate use of force in a war. And those two have been very clearly air-gapped in, um, in the just war tradition, in part because of the 
the very practical concern of not coming to the end of a war and and the victor saying you are engaged in an unjust war therefore all of your soldiers are criminals because they didn't have a, a just cause for what they were doing uh, and so everything everybody they killed was it was an act of murder uh, and that it, there are all sorts of obvious reasons why that would be a, a very um, practically problematic situation it, it, not the least because you don't want people engaged in a war who perhaps recognize they're they're on the unjust side in an ad bellum sense to go oh well i'm going to be considered a murderer anyway there are no constraints on me so so those constraints and that air gapping is very important but in terms of the actual um, impact of of the the discourse on the individual um of course everybody's going to to you know our soldiers are, are human beings they're, they're citizens they're part of the the culture and they they hear what goes on um, and so that's that's always a, a responsibility that that politicians need to take very clear, clearly. Now, the the formal and official uh, uh, talk about uh, Afghanistan, I think if you if you look at that, um, I I think you'll find it's pretty appropriate. Uh, at least you know it, there isn't any um, generalized uh, antipathy towards the people of Afghanistan that that I can see in in any of the the uh, political statements. I think it's also important. To distinguish um, the the phases of the of the the war, so there was obviously the initial invasion, um, which was one set. But then we've got this ongoing attempt to address the, the Taliban, but under the the auspices of the Af Afghan government uh, at the invitation of them. And I think that's quite a different mm. set of of circumstances. And and so I. Yeah, I think we just have to be careful. It, it is a complicated uh, situation, and I, I think it's difficult to draw broad and sweeping conclusions on, on that front. Hmm. I think that, that that's really, really helpful. Can we just um, lean in a little bit on the idea of soldiers as moral agents? Because I think one of the things that I found persistently moving over the last four years has been to see those members of the ADF, even members of special forces coming forward and at considerable kind of personal cost, uh, even in cases at considerable moral risk, speaking about, disclosing, reporting their experience of or their bearing witness to certain things that they regarded as being, uh, as being unjust, as being immoral, as being a betrayal of their duty as soldiers and of the laws that govern their activity. As these stories have come out, and I, I mean, you know, there has been, a, I think, a good deal of hyperventilating, if I could put it that way, on one side of the moral spectrum or one side of the ideological spectrum, even as there's been a fair degree of obfuscation and providing of alibis on the other side of the ideological spectrum. I, I guess I kind of understand the moral seriousness or the moral intention behind them both. I guess what I'm wondering here, I mean, you've written and worked a lot on the notion of moral injury, of moral agents being involved in activities, in interventions that leave them not just the feeling of moral guilt or as if they're tainted, but almost a kind of moral dislocation. They no longer understand where in a moral community or where even in a moral universe they belong. I guess what I'm asking, Dean, is how is it that in the very act of taking seriously what the Bretherton, or what the Brereton Inquiry has found, how do we also pay careful heed to the injury that is experienced to the souls of so many of those others in the ADF who now even face the prospect of having their their citation being removed uh, from from their unit or from their regiment. It's a it's a really uh, big question and a, and a really important one. And I think uh, the the answer is we're still working this through. So moral injury as a concept is relatively new. It's a couple of decades old, but in terms of the actual bulk of scholarship, is still relatively small. Examining what it is and um, we haven't because we we don't have a generalized agreement of what it is. Talking about how we deal with it is is still very much up in the air. So I, I have some of my own views, and um, I, I always uh, say that these are my views, and uh, if you don't like them, I have others. But um, 
this this is I think a very important thing. And I think for me, and, and you mentioned Charles Taylor earlier, uh, being very influential on, on my early work, uh, on my work throughout really uh, my career. And one of the things that I take from him that, that I'm completely convinced of is that at some level we are foundationally moral beings, that um, our engagement with the world is always and inescapably defined by a perspective of evaluation, an evaluation of right and wrong, better or worse, higher and lower, and so on. And that broadly speaking, these are moral evaluations. That they're not just um, about what's useful to us, what's of instrumental value to us, because we judge ourselves in, in accordance to them as well. Uh, and I think that what, what my understanding of moral injury is that this core of us can become shaken, that, that it's what shapes our view of the world it's what guides us as we move through life. Um, but if we are confronted with something that so undermines some part of that foundation, we can, to some extent, become dysfunctional. We, we can can struggle to then engage in the world because one of the, the legs is broken, if you like, um, or, or we've been thrown so off kilter, we, we, we can't align ourselves with a balanced sense of appropriateness, a balanced sense of, of what people do. And so we can imagine people getting extremely uh, angry about small things because that alignment has been thrown out, that, that something that would normally be, yes, it's not appropriate, but it's a small thing because their perspective has been so shifted by something that's, that's, that's shaken that core. Uh, it generates a, a much bigger reaction and, and moral emotion is, is much more heightened than perhaps it should otherwise be. So I think it's a, it's a huge thing. Um, what we do about it is, a, is another discussion. Sorry, Dean, can I just get you to make that more concrete for me? Give me an example of the kind of thing that's shaking the core. Um, if you had a deep trust in the goodness of your cause, and then you're confronted by something that's, that shakes that enormously. Um, that If that has been a foundational part of your identity, and I think this is an identity thing, uh, that can completely throw you off kilter. Um, a, a, a version of moral injury that, that uh, some scholars are talking about, they're calling it existential injury. And this would be something like, for example, if you had a religious faith, and that was core to your understanding of the world from a broadly moral evaluative sense. And you saw something or you, you engaged in something that so challenged that foundational faith, um, that would completely disorientate you in your life. Your whole life had been orientated in terms of this set of values of these things that are important. This is how we treat people. But the existential injury, which is an extreme form of, of uh, moral injury, would just pull the rug out from that completely, and then you have you've lost your way of engaging. The right. So I get I get the idea of the existential anxiety there, and the sort of you know the ontological insecurity that can come with that. I'm just trying to figure out where that anxiety is in this case. Or maybe it's a question for you, Scott, since I think you introduced the the concept here. Well, see, I, I'm and I'm I'm actually keen to hear Dean's response to this because I I'll confess I'm I'm severely torn. I mean, I do not believe that we either should or that we, in fact, do train soldiers to suspend their sense of moral propriety or moral appropriateness, even if we refer to it as the rules of engagement or, or, or the laws that govern a, a wartime contact. Those, those are still things that have, if you like, a distinctly moral valence to them. So I don't think we just want soldiers to be to be unthinking or amoral killing machines. At the same time, Dean, I mean, it seems to me that one of the ways in which one can get a very, very clear sense of moral clarity is if I believe in the absolute rightness of my cause and I at the same time believe in the absolute wrongness <laughs> of, mm. of my opponents. Um, uh, and, and it seems to me that unless one holds the idea that I am in a vocation that people have trained me as best as they can to perform well and in a manner that upholds the deepest values and norms and rules and laws of our nation. 
nonetheless, virtually everything that I do is going to be at some level or another compromised or will run up against, unless I want to retreat back into a kind of morally absolutist universe, is going to leave me with deep and profound questions about what I have done, about the good that I've done, about evil that I might have been complicit in. I guess I'm, I I mean, I, I take the idea of moral injury, of moral dislocation, of believing that this cause was good and realizing that, you know, maybe there were undergirding factors I just didn't know. But I, I guess what I'm trying to discover is how is that avoidable unless one is effectively almost an absolutist moral monster? Right, absolutely. And and so to your first point, we, we certainly are not intending and no one would want um, a bunch of soldiers who are in a sense amoral, who just do the job, don't think about what its implications are. We want people to go, I did something that was regrettable because killing people should always be something that is regrettable. But in these circumstances, because of the the constraints that have been worked out over time, it was nonetheless an appropriate thing to do. Mm. And that balance is very important. And particularly when we're engaged in um, very complex environments. And that's really the environments we've been engaged in, at least since World War II. You know, um, we don't have a, uh, uh, always have a, an enemy who is just terribly bad to all degrees and everybody involved is, well, maybe we never did. So that's why it's so important for the, for the combatant to be able to, in a sense, protect themselves by going, this was appropriate in this context. Not that I relish it, I regret it, I regret that it had to happen, was, are always regretful. Um, and I, I regret that I have to do my job. But when I do it, I need to do it in a way knowing that I'm doing it appropriately. Uh, and that is what's going to protect me from moral injury. Hmm. Can I ask you then, if military veneration isn't the right way, or you might want to dispute this, I, I believe that Walid and I would probably suspect that military veneration is the wrong way of welcoming those whom we've commissioned to do acts that the rest of us are blessedly exempt from. If military, uh, kind of uncritical military veneration is the wrong way of welcoming soldiers back into a common moral community, is there a better way? Is there a, a, a right way that doesn't maybe occasion that sense of profound dislocation or that almost that, that dizziness, that moral vertigo, that I know what I've done and yet here are sort of shrines being built <laughs> to, uh, um, uh, to the military itself. Yeah, I, look, I think veneration is, is um, almost certainly not what we want. I think that's not helpful to the combatants themselves. And actually, uh, most soldiers I talk to don't really like it. Um, and so I, I think that we, we make a mistake when we build it up into some kind of mythology. I think gratitude is appropriate to people who have put their lives on the line um, for us. Um, and we've seen that, in, for example, in COVID, um, the kind of gratitude that has been displayed in various places because towards uh, healthcare workers, that seems appropriate. Uh, that's not veneration. Um, so I do think that there's an appropriate respect and, and thankfulness for them, but it can go over to be a, a kind of, of, as you say, mythology and worship, which is, which is unhelpful to everybody. Um, those who don't like it find it very uncomfortable. Uh, those who perhaps buy into it, there's a danger there that they think too highly of their, their themselves. I suppose in the sense that that, that exceptionalism that can mm. be can become problematic. And I think it's wow. worth reflecting on the fact that it does seem to appear in most countries, most cultures. Like, yes, we're deeply attracted to it as a species for some reason, and it may be to do with the need to express gratitude to those that we've outsourced the things we don't want to do and are not prepared to do, maybe. Although we outsource that to politicians and we don't express gratitude <laughs> towards them. Um, uh, or it may be to do with just deep-seated insecurities that we have and so the military is becomes a symbol of security in some way and so we latch on to I don't know. I think there's a very important inquiry there for us to get stuck into at some point, and indeed someone probably has done it and done it very well. But uh, hmm. 
There's there's a universality about this particular. I'd I'd call it a problem. There's a universality about that particular problem. I think that bears some scrutiny. Alas, we don't have time to do anything with that right now. But thanks very much for delivering us to it, Dean. We appreciate your contribution. Thanks very much. Yes, thank thank you so much, Dean. I've actually found that quite. I mean, not just enlightening, but sort of soul deepening. Um, if you want to read more from Dean Peter Baker, he does have this wonderful book out, "Morality and Ethics at War: Bridging the Gaps Between Soldier and State." He's also written a piece for ABC Religion and Ethics on the nature of moral injury. Just go to abc.net.au/religion. I should also say, Walid, um, I think w- while a great deal of attention over the last uh, week has been paid to those uh, members of the ADF who have done things that many of us find unthinkable. I think we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which there are those who are current and former members of the ADF that also find this news unthinkable and find the tainting and the tarnishing of their work, of their moral labors, very, very difficult. And so we just wanted to uh, both acknowledge that with a degree of the gratitude that Dean was speaking about. And we should also say uh, we've provided details for these services on the Minefield website. Um, but if this has all been really, really morally taxing to listen to, or if you're finding some of what's been reported over the last week extremely difficult to relive or to hear, uh, if you would have your pen and paper handy, there are a number of services uh, that are available. The Defense All Hour Support Line is a confidential service for ADF members and their family. You can find them online or on 1-800-628-036. Open Arms provides round-the-clock and fr- uh, free and confidential counseling and support for current and former ADF members and their families. That's on 1-800-011-046. And Soldier On provide support for defense personnel, veterans, and their families. During office hours, you can call them on 1-300-620-380. Thanks so much for this, Dean and Waleed, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Thanks. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.